And so why Exodus? Well, remember two years ago, I studied, for those of you that were here, I studied Leviticus. And I argue that Leviticus was the, the blueprint or the paradigm for all of New Testament theology. It lays the foundation for everything that we believe. It's God entering into a world. So remember where we are in the story. The Israelites have just come out of Egypt, out of slavery in Exodus. And they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai. So they're sitting there. And then Moses goes up and gets all these writings. And he begins to tell them the story. And they begin to listen to the story that they've never heard. And so uh, that's, that's what's happening. We talked last week about the plagues and why the plagues. And I was uh, astonished, surprised, and um, grateful for the number of you that came up and have never tied the plagues to the gods, the gods of Egypt. So the 10 plagues were uh, related to to 10 of the chief gods of Egypt, and God destroyed the gods. So that helps answer the question, why did he start the story with creation, Genesis 1 and 2? Why there? It's become one of the most controversial parts in evangelical Christianity, and it's like, really? This one? If you're sitting there hearing the story for the first time, of creation, what you see is that God is showing you the truth and is dismantling the king of the gods of Egypt, the sun god Ra, who was in charge of creation. And what he's saying is everything you learned was wrong. Here's the truth. I made creation. I made it for you. And we've gotten wrapped around the axle on science and the literal, all that stuff. It's like you're missing the main point of what God was doing. He's got a bunch of slaves sitting in the sand and he tells them the story that no, the sun god Ra did not do this. I did it. I did it. So they're hearing the story for the first time. I can't wait to get to eternity and sit with as many of these slaves as I can and say, what was it like to hear the story for the first time? What was it like? We've politicized everything. We've got, we've integrated science into everything. And we just miss the basic simplicity of the story and the theology of what's happening here, of what God did. I want to know what it was like for them never hearing the story and hearing it for the first time. So when we get into, if Leviticus is a a blueprint for holiness and what it means to live the life that we were created to live, that's what holiness is all about, okay? Is to learning how to live the life that God created us for. And we're going to come back to that. Then Exodus is is the story, the paradigm or the blueprint for what true freedom is all about, okay? And so the Bible's very clear uh, on what freedom is, when Paul says in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, what does that mean? Okay, what does that mean? And Exodus lays that story down. So when we got to the plagues, for example, last week, um, before Christmas, I'll review where we've gone, and then after Christmas, we'll pick, up, pick it up in the second part. I asked you, so God destroyed the gods, the idols of Egypt. He did that for a specific reason which we'll talk about real quickly here. And I left you last week with, what are the idols that you struggle with? What is it? Is it money, wealth, prestige, significance, skiing, nature, hiking? You know, I'm astonished that I don't need to go to church. I can find God out there. No, you actually can't. That's a lie. Because God is revealed through people. Ephesians 3 His desire was that his manifold wisdom would be revealed through the church. His glory, at the end of chapter 3, to God be the glory in the church. 
So no, you can't actually find God out there. The closest you can find, the New Testament argues, is an awareness that there's a God who exists. But you won't find a personal God there. Every nation I go to, and I go to a lot, every nation believes that. Every tree is a God. Every rock is a God. Every mountain's a God. Every flower's a God. And there's no personal relationship. Our God is very personal. And so where you'll find him, and this is where we're going to end up today with this story, is where you will find God is in a deep, deeply loving, caring, honest community. Characterized by grace. Characterized by love, by forgiveness. That's where you'll find God. Right? There's no billboard out there. There's enough evidence, Paul says, in creation to get you to ask the question, who is God? But that's it. That's it. So today, we're going to, uh, we're going to move into the Passover. Well, didn't we talk about that last week? Well, we did. Guess what? It's repeated. Why is it repeated? In, in uh, Jewish thinking, whenever they wanted to emphasize something, they would repeat it. They would say it twice. So at the end of Exodus, he gives all the detailed instructions for the tabernacle, and then he repeats it and gives all the detailed instructions, word for word the same. Why would he say all those details twice? Because it's important. So the more you, the more you repeat it, the more important it becomes. One thing's repeated three times, holy, 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 as the Lord God Almighty. That's the key that unlocks all of Scripture. And Americans, we just say it louder. <laughs> That's how we get our point across. And, uh, and so when you look at in here, you're going to see when we get back to, to Passover this week, he gives us three reasons why Passover is critical and it relates to us today, believe it or not. But the, the beginning is, why did God do the plagues in the first place? In chapter 7, I'm just going to read verse 5. Um, we brought this last week. That he said, uh, Pharaoh's not going to listen to him. The Egyptians will know after I bring all the plagues and destroy their gods. That's, those are my words. That's earlier in the chapter. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Whenever you see Lord with all capitals in your English translation, that is the personal name of God. Now remember, the ancient gods never gave their names. We had to guess. We had to figure out who they were. But our God gave us his name in Exodus 3. And so whenever you see that, you can replace it with the one true living God who cares about all of creation. So the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, the one true living God who cares about all creation when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So then at the end of that, um, excuse me, so at the end of the time, 430 years, Moses, uh, Pharaoh finally relents. He has no choice because God has completely destroyed all the gods. What that means, he's destroyed the nation. I remember God said, I decide which nation to rise up and which nation to destroy. And so by destroying the gods, he destroyed the nation. Because if the trees are a god, he destroyed all the trees. If the animals are gods, which they were in Egypt, then he destroyed all the animals. Okay? And so by destroying all the gods, he basically bankrupted the entire country. You can go back in history and read about it if you want. The, the Old Testament is true. We've done plenty of work to put down where this happened. And so he, he basically bankrupted the whole nation. They had nothing left. So then he leads the people out, and they sit at Mount Sinai. And he begins to give them a whole different perspective. Why Sinai? 
because that's where he promised to Moses that he would take them. But also, Sinai was far away from Egypt and far away from the nations of Canaan. And so, therefore, they weren't distracted by all of these practices that he was not in favor of. It's a neutral place out in the desert. Have a seat. So they're sitting on their sand dunes hearing this for the first time, these stories. And, 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 and what we find in this chapter, into 12 and 13, is we find the seeds planted that become, they bloom full blossom in the New Testament. But these seeds are all right here. We saw that in Leviticus as well. So the Israelites, remember, had been exempted from most of the earlier plagues, uh, but not from the final plague, the plague of the Passover, where the angel of death passed over, took the life of all the firstborn sons. And remember, that was an attack on one of the gods of Egypt. See, the firstborn son was the one that could lead you to the next life. And God wants to make a statement, no, I am the one that has power over death and life, not you. So the Israelites were actually not exempted from this last plague, Everyone is subject to God with both life and death. So what we talked about last week is that the Passover does not celebrate the Exodus. What it celebrates is deliverance from death. That's what it celebrates. They were to do the Passover because the angel passed over. And they were celebrating life. So I entitled the sermon, From Death to Life. It's a journey. And it comes through the Passover all the way through Christian theology because Jesus died during Passover. Now we're going to hear about Passover a second time. So earlier on, we talked about the procedure for Passover. Now he's going to give us the implications of Passover. Why is this significant? And this relates very much to us today. So in chapter 12, verse 43, um, he says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. Okay? They're going to do Passover. The first thing we notice is that uh, it's to be followed by seven days of fe- uh, excuse me, festival. It's a feast of unleavened bread. Okay, in chapter 12, verse 39, he says there, With the dough that the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast, and because they had been driven out of Egypt, it did not have time to prepare food for themselves. That's how quickly it happened. God said, go, and they left. They didn't have time to get leaven. No yeast for their dough. And so the very first thing we learn about this is that, well, I guess the question we should ask is, why, why is leaven and unleavened so important? Not a pun, but it kind of grows throughout Scripture, okay? And uh, I'm not a cook, so I had to learn about that from my wife. <laughs> and so why is it becomes, it becomes symbolic all throughout Scripture, and it's related to sin, okay? And so this to be fo- it's to follow Passover with seven days, Passover with seven days of feasting. Chapter 13, verse 6. Seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. All the festivals are a time to relax, rest, and and laugh. They're to remember what God has done. They're parties. That's why God's had seven festivals scattered throughout the agricultural year. 
is to get the people to stop. Because the ancient gods, all the gods were like, you're not, you don't work hard enough. You need to work harder. And God said, no, I don't think so. Let's create the Sabbath every day, take a break and rest. And in fact, three times a year, gather as a nation and let's just celebrate the Lord's goodness. All the festivals were, were designed to be celebra- celebratory. They were designed to make people laugh and rest. So the very first one is Passover. We're going to take one day and celebrate we survived it and we're alive. And then take seven days and celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. And in that verse, they had no time to prepare. So leaven consistently is used throughout scripture as a metaphor for sin. You may not, I don't know if you remember this, but when you get to Leviticus, we talked about it two years ago, but later on in the book, they hadn't heard this yet. It actually becomes one of the requirements. When you celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, clean the house of all leaven. Get it out of the house. So what they did was, the moms, would, they'd clean house as a family, and the mom would go hide just a little bit of leaven somewhere in the house, and all the kids had to go find it right? Just to make sure. And it became an annual thing that they did that was joyful to make sure that the leaven was cleaned out of the house. And that's what God begins to use to symbolize sin. Get sin out of the house. So the very first implication of Passover and the celebration related to it is that like leaven, sin cannot be contained, contained to a small part of our lives. It just can't. I've said many times, we're so familiar with sin and brokenness that we become accustomed to it. We have little white lies. It's only just a glance, desire after another woman or man. No, it's not a little white lie. That little white lie was enough to send Christ to the cross, okay? Don't be fooled that sin is insignificant. Now, I'm not trying to drive a guilt trip here. I don't want you to you know, to walk away thinking, oh gosh, I got to be militant. No, that's not it at all. I just want you to appreciate that when you walk away from a little white light, just stop and say, ooh, God, sorry about that. You know, because it is that serious. And so this concept of leaven teaches us that sin cannot be contained even to the smallest part of our lives. So moving from death to life, which is symbolized by Passover, And then moving from the curse of death should lead us to an ongoing life of freedom. Ongoing life of freedom, not guilt. And definitely not ignoring. You know, that's why I've talked to many times. Just develop a heart of, sorry God, that was stupid. I'm sorry. He wants to, he wants us to be aware that the sacrifice and everything he's doing, remember, he could have just let it go. When Adam and Eve turned away, he could have just dumped the whole thing, started over again. But he didn't want to. Why? Because he made us. He created us. Just like we don't ever want to dump our, well, maybe we do want to dump our kids from time to time. No, just kidding. You know, we don't want to dump our kids because they came from us, right? Well, he's no different. And so he feels that deep love. Well, the second implication of Passover, so you have Passover and then seven days of feasting and celebrating with unleavened bread. That's why Paul can say, is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't use that freedom for sin, for hedonism and all that. Don't use it for that. Use it for goodness. Use it for others. Okay? It's for freedom. And we were made for freedom. We were created for that. And sin entangles us. Ask any drug addict. 
alcoholic. And they'll tell you they're, they're trapped. That's what sin does. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, Christ set you free from slavery to sin. So why do you keep sinning? You don't have to. You can start making better decisions now. And that's what the journey to Christ-likeness is all about. But then there's a second implication that comes out in chapter 12, verse 48. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native born, that's the Israelite, and to the foreigner residing among you. So the one who celebrates the festival must be circumcised. Okay? Now this goes all the way back to Genesis 17 when God made the promise with Abraham. He said, from now on, the people that want to belong to the covenant, and what's the covenant? I'm going to bless you. And therefore, you're going to be a blessing to all the world. Whoever wants to participate in that covenant has to be circumcised. Okay, pause. Remember two or three weeks ago when we were looking at uh, earlier part of Exodus and, and Moses does not want to do this mission and, and he confronts God over, I don't want to do this. I'm not a good speaker. We know, no, 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 I don't want to do this. So God eight times says, no, you're getting the story wrong. I'm going to do it. You're not going to do it. I am. And we learned from that in the following chapter that that all that you accomplish for the Lord means absolutely nothing. The real question is, what do you allow him to accomplish through you by your faithfulness? That's the real question. And so finally Moses says, all right, great, I'll go do it. Then he heads off for Egypt and God tries to kill him. Remember that little troubling passage? God just talked him into it and he tried to kill him. And so why? And then Zipporah goes and circumcises their son, Cuts, his, cuts off the foreskin, throws his at his, Moses' feet and said, you're a bridegroom of blood, of death to me. You know, God almost killed us because of your lack of faith. And what God was saying that, Moses said, okay, I'll do it. And God says, no, you're not ready to do it now because you never circumcised your own sons. You don't actually believe in the covenant. It's an example of poor faith. And God's not about to let him lead until Moses becomes convinced that this is legitimate. Then he becomes a leader at that point. And so here we have this whole, con- this whole question of circumcision that comes up. And it's a lot of controversy around it. A lot of questions get asked all the time. Why the male? Blah, blah, blah. Well, at this time in world history, and it's still true in many of the African nations and communal nations, the male is the leader. And it, well, how it goes with the males, how it goes with the family. So if the male decides to worship a certain God, everybody in the family worships a certain God. They didn't have much choice, but that's the way it went. And so at this time in history, circumcision, God went after the leaders uh, of the families and the tribes and the nation to demonstrate that you needed to be circumcised to celebrate in this festival for seven years, seven days, this seven-day festival. Okay, what do we learn from that? Well, only those who identify themselves truly with the people of God can celebrate and enjoy true fellowship. Okay? I'll show you why in just a minute, but this moves into the whole concept of communion. And guess what? Um, circumcision is a public event. When the boys were circumcised, the, the families were standing around watching. Okay? How did Pharaoh's daughter 
know that Moses, laying there in a basket, was a Hebrew baby. They were the same color. He was circumcised. You see, his mom and dad were faithful, and he wasn't. By the time God reaches him 40 years later into the desert, he's 80 years old now, he's lost his will. He's lost his desire. He's given up. And God's not about to let him be a leader until he reconnects with his faith. So circumcision was very public. Now, circumcision, the Jerusalem Council argued, I'm not going to take you through the argument, but that's no longer a requirement, okay? That has been replaced. In fact, I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 2, where Paul talks about this, because this is a, a really beautiful thing for what happens in today's world. And I'm going to go back to 28. A person who is not, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So all of a sudden, circumcision is now a spiritual issue to cut out the evil heart. And that's what it symbolized all the way back here. Okay? The leaders, the males, would get circumcised, and they would lead their people away from idolatry into worship of the one true God. Now, by God's grace, when the new covenant came, the spirit came, men and women got equalized. Okay? What does Peter say? The very first thing he says at Pentecost. The very first thing. Your sons and your daughters will dream dreams and prophesy. Guess what? Here it is. We're now equal. Side by side, shoulder to shoulder for the ministry. And so circumcision disappears because it's now circumcision of the heart. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 3, in Christ there's neither male nor female. We stand equal before the Lord. And it all starts right here. So the second implication is that in order to celebrate the festival, you had to be circumcised or you have to identify yourself with the people of God. That's what I just said a minute ago. You can't find God out there. You can't. And you can't find God here if we're not the type of congregation that represents the kingdom. We're not complainers. We're forgivers. We have love for one another. We sacrifice in our marriages, our friendships. We care for one another. That's why that language is repeated all throughout the New Testament. And it starts here. Identifying as a people of God is where you will find true relationship. That's where you'll find it. When you're in trouble, let us know. We'll come running. We'll come running. Several of us just prayed with a woman first service who has a serious surgery coming up. We pulled her aside, anointed her with oil, and just laid our hands on her and left her and prayed for her. She's nervous. Let us know. We'll come. Well, then there's a third one is that uh, this is kind of an interesting one. Today, the firstborn male has to be redeemed. Chapter 13, verse 15. So, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord, there's our caps, to the one true living God who cares about this creation. That's why I sacrificed to this God, the true God, the first male offspring of every room, a womb, and redeem each of my firstborn sons. Okay, 
Now remember, in Egypt, the firstborn represented one of the deities, okay, like similar to Pharaoh, because they were the ones who perpetuated life into the next life, the next, uh, today the Eastern nations would call it reincarnations or the next incarnation. I had a guy say to me once, I don't like Christianity, he doesn't believe in reincarnation. I said, sure it does. He goes, what? He says only once. I'm me and I get incarnated in a new body. He was floored. I don't believe in 30 million like Hinduism, okay? And so what, we, what we're talking about here is that when God destroyed the firstborn, he was making a statement that you're looking in the wrong place. I control death and life, okay? God is very clear through the Bible. I decide who to make, make rich and I decide who to make poor. I decide which nation to raise up. I decide which nation to destroy. That's my choice as God. We may not like it, but God is God. If he's really God, it's his choice to do that. And so he's making a statement here. Every time you have your firstborn child, I want you to remember that I made the decision. That was me. I remember when my 43 years ago when my firstborn son was born, my first wife, who passed away, as you know, um, we were sitting there together on the floor looking at him. We came over from the hospital. We're, he's laying on the floor. So much joy. She was terminally ill. University of Colorado Health Sciences Center said she was the first woman they could find in recorded history with her disease to uh, nurse a baby. Decided all kinds of federal funding to study her milk. And we sat there filled with joy at God's blessing. So then God says, I mean, she says, so uh, now what do we do? I don't know. I suppose we raise them. She says, what does that mean? I don't know. I guess we're going to have to figure it out. He's 43 now, right? And that was the intent behind this, this statement that in order to celebrate this great festival, you had to redeem the firstborn. In other words, they put in place a sacrifice annually for the firstborn. They would go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Remember when Jesus was born? That's one of the Christmas stories. Simeon, she brings a little baby into the temple. That was a way of saying, God, thank you. By the time you get the number child four or five, it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, just kidding. But the first one is something about the first one. And so this really relates a lot to what Paul argues in Romans 8. Okay? Listen to these well-known verses. This is kind of where we're going to end. These well-known verses, many of you can quote them. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Okay, first of all, do you love the Lord? Do you really love the Lord? I can't answer your question for you. Can I only answer it for me? Do you really love the Lord? Think about these words. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's a question you have to search in your own heart. How, how deep is your love for the Lord to do that? I can't answer it for you doesn't do any good to pretend. Who have been called according to his purpose. You have a mission in life. Do you realize that? Theologians call it the missio dei. That's Latin for the mission of God. You know what that mission is? To love your neighbor. To really, honestly, genuinely 
Love your neighbor and your enemies. Everybody is worthy of love. That's why I've said it repeatedly. The school board, whoever, you, whoever your enemy is, it's not our enemy. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against Satan. That's who it is. Okay? Now, we don't always understand how God's goodness plays out in our lives because a lot of times it doesn't work with us in our world today. But just like Job said at the final, last thing he said, after a year of torment, God said, would you really annul my judgment? It was my decision that you suffer pain. And what is Job's answer? I'm sorry. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. And you have to remember that. But he goes on from there. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, stop. A lot of political, I mean not political, theological arguing around this whole concept. Election, predestination, depending on your denominations, you've heard different sides of this story. Okay, predestination, as far as I can tell, always applies to the believer. When you decide to follow the Lord, it has been determined by God that you will become conformed to the image of his son. You will become a loving, generous, gracious person. Remember the serendipity prayer? Um, there's two footprints and then there's one. Uh, that's where I carried you. Well, there's one on Facebook that I just love. What about the line in the sand? That's where I drug you kicking and screaming. Okay? And that's really at the heart of it. But he goes on from there. Okay? Those whom God foreknew, that's all of you that love God, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's going to teach you what it means to be true human. When we started this whole discussion on the Christian school that we're going to open this uh, fall of next year, we read a quote by a Jewish, uh, Jewish psychologist who uh, went through the Holocaust. It's a very simple quote. I'm just going to paraphrase it. I'm a survivor of the Holocaust. I saw things no human should see. I saw gas chambers built and designed by educated engineers. I saw babies tormented and subjected to, un- to cruel and unusual punishment by educated nurses. I saw adults purposely given drugs to see what happened to them by educated physicians. So you'll understand if I'm not a big fan of education. Isn't that great? And then he goes on. But if you decide to educate, reading, writing, arithmetic is only good if it teaches a person to be a human, we would say Christ-like, because that's a true human. It is a waste if you produce psychopaths. You see, education cannot be amoral, contrary to what our world thinks. It's either moral or immoral. And he pointed that out. So, to be the image, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Loving, kind people. Loving, kind people. Why? So that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is the firstborn. This goes all the way back to Exodus 12 and 13. The firstborn. If there's no children, he's not the firstborn. And he gets to be the firstborn because he's got flocks of us all over the world learning to be kind. So, by giving himself, in sacrifice, Jesus becomes our Passover lamb. 
So those three implications are true for us today. Right? Let's put away the sin. Let's do our best to live holy lives. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's asking you to be. But keep working at it. The second one is that make a public statement. That's what baptism is all about. You stand up here and you say, I want to identify with this fantastic community and be part of it. And the third one is to recognize Jesus is the true firstborn as an example for us of what it means to be a true human. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your graciousness to us. Thank you for, contrary to public opinion, you're not a God of rules and judgment. Just the opposite. You're a God for us as your children who love us and care. And you want us to live the life that you created us to live. A life of cleanness. A life of simplicity. A life of love. A life of forgiveness and grace and all that. Thank you for being that kind of God. In your name we pray. Amen.